Hello and welcome to the last Nomi Key show before 2021. I'm Nomi Key Konst and I'm trying very hard to feel that holiday spirit. Well, here is all I want for the holidays. Solidarity. Solidarity on the left. If you haven't noticed, the left is under siege right now from every corner. The right wing, the neoliberals, the nihilists, who knows who else. This is a crisis moment for us. And these next few weeks will be a very important time to hunker down. Divide and conquer, that is the strategy being used against us. Tricking us against each other, turning on each other, to mistrust each other, to doubt each other. This is how corporations have defeated unions for more than 100 years. Classic union busting. It is how the government undermined the Black Panthers and disrupted the civil rights movement. This is why solidarity is so important now, always, but especially right now. It is why solidarity has always been so important. Solidarity doesn't mean we all agree on everything. It means we all agree to stick together come hell or high water. Because as the song says, when we stick together, quote, there can be no power greater anywhere beneath the sun. The song, of course, is Solidarity Forever. That was written by a guy named Ralph Chaplin. Chaplin was a writer and cartoonist for a magazine called Solidarity, a publication of the IWW, International Workers of the World, the Wobblies. Chaplin was inspired to write this song after witnessing a brutal strike of coal miners in West Virginia in 1912. One one verse begins, quote, they have taken untold millions that they have never, that they never toiled to earn, but without our brain and muscle, not a single wheel can turn, end quote. The mine bosses did everything that they could to divide divide the striking miners. They evicted the strikers from their rented rooms and their homes, forcing them to move into tents for the Appalachian winter. They sent in strikers, uh, strike breakers and goons. 50 people were killed in violent clashes and many more died of exposure and starvation in the middle of winter. Mother Jones, she arrived to rally those miners. The strike went on for more than a year and was really the first in a series of battle across this country between the copper and coal bosses and the miners. Chaplin's song has, passed, has been passed down to us you know, from then to now with a message that is every bit as true today. Quote, we can break their haughty power, gain our freedom when we learn that the union makes us strong, end quote. And today's solidarity isn't just trade unions alone, although they are key and crucial to this fight ahead and cannot be left out. We are talking about all of us, the working people, united. Look at Medicare for all. They have got us fighting with each other over tactics. While Americans are dying because our public health system is so exploitative, many of us have been working on this project of Medicare for all for years the Healthcare Now conference is coming up to discuss expanding coalitions and the strategy to pass Medicare for all in this new administration. And it will bring us all together to focus you know, on the movement for the next year. There are leaders like our friend Amy Valella, who lost her 22-year-old daughter when a Las Vegas hospital failed to treat her because she did not have health insurance. Amy took that grief and for five years, has used it to power her determination to win Medicare for all. 
She's run for office. She's advocated around the country. She's shown up at rallies and organized on the ground. She's part of DSA's movement. She was a surrogate for Bernie Sanders. So we, she does this all so we won't have to suffer the loss that she did. Just the other day, Amy tweeted, quote, holiday solidarity is definitely a verb. Right on, Amy. I am standing in solidarity with Amy and the other progressive leaders who have been fighting this fight even before the pandemic showed us how desperately we need this. And I hope you will stand with us too because we want Medicare for all, but we should not get distracted by really what's become toxic disagreements over maneuvers and tactics, and it's gone personal. This is about saving the lives of our fellow Americans, our friends, our family. It's about not going broke because you can't pay for your health insurance or you have health care bills and you have to choose between, can I pay for my rent or I have to pay off my health care bills? Or of course, the long-term effects and the treatment that, that goes with that. Of course, if we had Medicare for all, it would be an important buffer. It would make sure that folks can't afford their rent when government clearly doesn't care about that either. The vote we need is the one that passes Medicare for all and sends it into the president's office, the Oval Office, for a signature. The strategy we need is building support for that vote, vote an outside-inside strategy. And let's be clear why. You have heard a lot this horrible year about the 300,000 Americans who have died of COVID. It is urgent to connect that horror to our fight for Medicare for all. Most of those 300,000 dead had other health challenges, what the doctors call comorbidities, what the health insurance debate calls pre-existing conditions. But what are these comorbidities? Diabetes, health, health, uh, heart disease, excuse me, high blood pressure, obesity, even vitamin D deficiency. Every one of these conditions is treatable, every single one. In other words, thousands and thousands and thousands of Americans who die needlessly because of the conditions that should be treated easily but are not being treated until it's too late. This is the true scandal of COVID-19, not whether China hid the virus or Trump turned not wearing a mask into some sort of reverse virtue signal. Virtue signal. The true scandal is that our healthcare system let thousands of our fellow Americans die of COVID-19 because they did not get treated for the pre-existing conditions that made the virus so lethal. And they can't get treated afterwards if they did survive COVID-19, not to mention the bills that stack up in between. Even now, thousands more will die in the next six months. We could save many of them with a crash public health program that made it easy to walk in and get treated for diabetes, health, health disease, high blood pressure, uh, heart disease, excuse me, obesity, and yes, even vitamin D deficiency. The biggest beneficiaries of this health service would be those without insurance. So think of it as a down payment on Medicare for all. Create a base to deliver better health care for everyone immediately while bringing the nightmare of this pandemic to an end. Also, by the way, this would be a system to make sure the vaccine reaches everyone as quickly as possible. That could be built into the electoral momentum for Medicare for all. But whatever we do, we have to do this together with healthcare workers, with the uninsured, with unions, with lawmakers, but together in a coalition with a solid strategy and message to win with people sharing their stories. I mean, remember Obamacare, the campaign that went into that to get it passed. If we fight amongst ourselves, 
the bosses win. If we yell and smear our allies, the bosses win. They aren't coal bosses and copper bosses anymore. They are insurance bosses, health system bosses, and the lobbyists and lawmakers and Republicans and Democrats who have been funded by them. But the issue is the same. Solidarity forever. All right, we have a wonderful show today. We have Bron- Bronco Mercedic, then Jordan Zacharin and Esperanza uh, Fonseca on. Uh, if you have not already, make sure to sign up for our book club. We are starting that on January 1st. It's very exciting. We have three different levels of book club membership. Uh, go check it out at patreon.com slash the Nomi Key Show. You can read one book a month, two books a month, or four books a month. Uh, but we will have conversations each week about those books. I'm super excited. And thank you to Professor Harvey Kay for donating the first batch of the Thomas Paine book that we're going to be covering first. Go check that out. And thanks to everybody who's already joined. This is super exciting. Um, I'm, I'm getting ready. I'm structuring my life a little bit differently so that I can read four books a month. Uh, and hopefully, you know, I'm happy to share some of those tips as well. All right. We will be right back with Bronco. Welcome back to the Nomi Key Show. Uh, hey, this is the time to smash that like button and click subscribe. I have not told you guys, but we are switching up for the holidays. Uh, our show, our three o'clock show, we're going to be doing extensive interviews. And then in the evening, you don't know when, it's going to be a surprise. I will do some live streams with special guests that you will find out in the moment. So that's why you got to click that little bell so you get the alert. And no, when we're going live with with folks that have been on the show, folks that have not been on the show, we're going to talk about some controversial stuff. It'll be more like evening kombucha drinking uh, than a three o'clock daily show. So that is the holiday program. This is our last live structured show uh, of the year. But we do have special interviews that you've not seen before that are going to be going up over the holiday season. All right. I am super excited um, about our next guest. He had an article that came out in Jacobin uh, recently that I, I mean, if you, if, if, <laughs> if you're interested in the CIA and their secret programs, um, I don't know how secret it is now, but the CIA's, the article is titled the CIA's Secret Global War Against the Left. And it is about Operation Candor. Of course, I'm talking to Bronco, now make sure I'm saying your name right. Marcetic or Marchetic? Which one is it? Uh, Marchetich. Marchetich. Even, even more difficult than you really? think. Really? Okay. So wait, wait. I need, a, I need to be, I have a difficult name, so I need to be taught. Marchetic? Marchetich. Yes? The best way to do it is if you smush, if you just smash <laughs> March and teach together. So the two words together. Marchetich. Set them in quick succession. Marchetich. You Done. basically got it. March teach. Got it. All right. So let's, let's just start off with, um, uh, operation candor. What time period was this? This was from 1975. Uh, the, the dates vary different people sort of give it different bands, but you know, until about the, the early eighties or so. Um, and you know, basically it was this, uh, agreement among a bunch of Latin American countries, uh, to go after uh, dissidents and, and you know, not just left-wing radicals and, and people who are part of revolutionary movements, but, but people who are even more run-of-the-mill kind of, uh, uh, you know, perhaps you'd say establishment-friendly uh, critics of these dictatorial, uh, dictatorial regimes. Um, and it, it was this idea to sort of expand it beyond the national borders and kind of go throughout all of Latin America and, and you know, even uh, the, the world as well. Um, 
you know, I just, and we've had him on the show, but we just finished up the book, uh, Jakarta Method. And I mean, it, it, I'm sure you're aware of the Jakarta Method in terms of this, this strategy that was sort of launched in, in um, Indonesia to eliminate anybody who uh, was merely associated with the Communist Party or unions or the left or appeared to or showed up in a room with them or whatever. Um, but it was, I mean, it was essentially genocide of over a million people uh, that, and, and very soon after, um, turned Indonesia into a, a capital state in which, you know, hotels popped up um, along the shorelines where folks were, were slaughtered. And then they use these, he, the claim is that he, they used these same tactics um, in the global South, specifically in areas, you know, Brazil is a, is a perfect example. Um, is, is this part of that, that, that strategy, or is this a separate, uh, a, a separate campaign, Operation Candor, a separate campaign from, from the Jakarta method? Yeah, I mean, so Condor was its own thing. Um, it was something that the the uh, military dictatorships of South America came up with on their, well, uh, maybe not on their own, but certainly they they came together and they said, this is what we're going to do to get rid of all these pockets of resistance. Um, but, I mean, it's not a coincidence that these things kind of carry over from one uh, country or one part of the world to another. Um, you know, I think that the, the techniques that you saw in Indonesia I think there is a, a, a sort of a link to Condor in the sense that, you know, who's training all these people? A lot of times it's, it's uh, the CIA, it's U.S. military, um, you know, advisors who are going over and, and telling people, uh, you know, this is how you deal with uh, dissent. This is how you deal with people who, you know, are, are threatening, uh, you know, either your legitimacy or your power or, you know, uh, whatever you want to, whatever justification you want to say. Um, and, you know, it, it's... Uh, Really goes back to to in many ways the the fascist regimes of the 1930s. Um, you know the we we see a lot of similarities between some of the stuff that happened in Condor and, and you know you could even say in Indonesia and you know some of the horrors that that uh, the the 1930s and the 40s were known for in, in Germany and Italy and so on and so forth. And you know it's not necessarily a coincidence. Uh, there was a uh, after World War II there was a a quiet uh, moving of these uh, former fascists um, and ex-Nazis, uh, you know, some of them were, were suddenly tried and killed. Others, because they were uh, useful for various reasons to uh, the, the winning powers, they were then kind of uh, either used to to recruit people so for sort of uh, ongoing anti-left organizing in those countries um, and actually given safe passage to go elsewhere. And so you, you see people like Nazis, like uh, uh, Klaus Barbie, who then went over to uh, you know, Bolivia and Argentina and countries like that. And, you know, lo and behold, uh, you know, it happens that those countries end up at some point instituting um, pretty vile and, and sadistic measures that are not uh, dissimilar to the stuff that you saw during World War II. And in partnership with the CIA and the School of Americas, right? So, yeah, so, absolutely. I'm sorry, there's a little bit of delay. Go ahead. Yeah, no, I mean, I, uh, yeah, exactly. It was the CIA um, and the School of Americas. The School of Americas, uh, you know, they would, uh, Latin American uh, militaries would send officers and the like to the U.S. to study at those schools. Um, and there they would be taught, uh, you know, sort of counterinsurgency tactics. But, uh, you know, uh, these manuals that we, that we used to teach people later came to light and they were teaching them a whole lot 
more than just uh, you know counterinsurgency tactics tactics in terms of military warfare. You know, they were teaching them torture and 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 you waterboarding, know, how to, right? To disappear, yeah, waterboarding, yeah. How to how to get people uh, to to open up about things that they want to talk about, you know, through force and drug use and, and psychological manipulation. So yeah, yeah, pretty pretty uh, bad stuff. And and when um, I mean. I guess we could focus on maybe Pinochet, but but they were rounding folks up just on the street and grabbing them. Uh, can you explain like how this operation for those who've never read about uh, how this specifically went down? Like how did they f- target folks and 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 grab them and and, and how did they disappear yeah. and yeah. Yeah, so, um, for example, let's say if uh, there were Chilean dissidents who were in hiding in Argentina or in exile in Argentina, uh, what would happen is basically uh, the countries of Condor would put together a, or rather the intelligence agencies would put together a, a team, a kind of uh, squad, a SWAT team, whatever you want to say, uh, that might have maybe nationals from just one country, or they might have nationals from several different Condor countries, it, it depended. Um, and, you know, that team would go, they would uh, track down this particular dissident, they would maybe surveil them for a while, they'd see what their movements were like, what they did, sort of get a, an idea of, of, you know, when they were most vulnerable, uh, how they could get to them, so on and so forth. Uh, then what would uh, often happen is that team would be replaced uh, by another team who would kind of have a, a whole bunch of different uh, sections to it. You know, they, they some of these, these uh, declassified documents talk about how these special forces teams that were sent by condo countries were very similar to ones that were used by the US. So, you know, they would have a, a bomb expert and, and you know, uh, someone else, you know, they, they would have sort of all these different kind of tactical elements uh, to those teams. And then they would, um, you know, whether in broad daylight or, or something else, when the time right, it was right, when, when the moment came, they would snatch these people up, throw them in a van and uh, take them somewhere, you know, maybe a prison in the countries that they were staying in, maybe a prison in another country. Um, you know, and it could be a, a prison that was known about, or it could be a, a secret prison. Um, and then typically they would be uh, tortured. Uh, you know, depends how long. Some people were there for, for months. Um, uh, many were disappeared. Some were, were also let out. Um, but, you know, many stories, many heartbreaking stories of people who simply just vanished and, and were never heard from again, and no one really knows what happened to them. Um, there were leaders of, uh, well-known leaders, like, uh, that, that were killed, have been killed around the world in, in more, quote-unquote, democratic uh, countries. I mean, there was, there was a famous mm-hmm. bombing on Embassy Row uh, in Washington, D.C. Can, can you help us understand just how organized this was um, from an international perspective, I mean, I, to me, it just immediately I'm thinking, how can you take somebody to a prison in another country? Uh, but this this was happening, and, and folks didn't know. Mm. Yeah, so when it was overseas, it tended to be assassinations. Um, you know, obviously in Latin America, you could easily kind of slip someone through a border, especially because these countries were collaborating, and so you could easily get someone to a prison and, and do what you want with them. The overseas stuff was was mainly about just um, just just killing people, getting getting rid of people, particularly uh, Chilean uh, uh, dissidents or, or opposition leaders, people who again were not necessarily leftists, but maybe had formed some sort of united common front 
with leftists, with former members of the um, Allende uh, government in Chile, uh, and, and sort of try to diplomatically isolate or, or otherwise uh, hurt uh, Pinochet's Chile. And so, um, yeah, what, what you'd see is uh, sometimes they would work with, uh, well, just, just alone or, or, you know, they would hire someone else. And in the case of um, the embassy road bombing, the, the murder of uh, Orlando Letelier, uh, they actually uh, worked with some Cuban exiles. Um, you know, the, the Cuban exiles were very busy in this period of time. Um, and in other cases, be, right? they... <laughs> exactly. They needed jobs. And then, uh, you know, sometimes as well in, in Europe, they were working with, um, with ex-fascists, ex, ex and neo-fascists. Um, and, you know, the, the, there's a historian, Patrice McSherry, who's, who's written about this, and she draws connections between what was happening in Condor and uh, Operation Gladio and, and the stay-behind armies, which are these kind of this uh, shadow infrastructure that the U.S. through NATO and, and the CIA set up in Europe after World War II, you know, if there was ever a, a Soviet invasion or, you know, God forbid, an actual democratic victory uh, for, for leftists in these countries, um, that they were sort of spring into action and, and you know, uh, uh, well, you know, do what they had to do to prevent that from happening, whether that meant murder or, or what have you. And so some of these networks were used to then assassinate these various, um, uh, uh, you know, exiled leaders, opposition leaders. Um, but the, the one embassy row is probably the most shocking because, of course, the U.S. was working with Chile at the time um, and, and for a, a foreign government uh, to, to carry out a terrorist attack on, on U.S. soil, an allied government, you know, technically, uh, was, was incredibly outrageous. Um, and, and, you know, for, for good reason, people, you know, there's been a, there was a scramble to, to cover up and obviously a lot of reluctance to let the truth out about what happened. Well, was it some sort of um, intelligence, I don't want to say accident, but it, it I mean, if, if the CIA is co- was coordinating with whoever was a Cuban exiles, I mean, it was this a lapse or did they know that this was going to happen? Yeah. So, uh, for example, uh, John Dingus, who I, uh, cite in the, uh, in the piece, you know, he, he says he's, he's looked through the evidence and, and he, he believes pretty firmly that the evidence shows the CIA did not know. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's it's not culpable for for what happened i mean the cia knew that there was an operation condor they they you know the the u.s government at the highest levels really encouraged it both both tacitly and and openly uh the u.s you know had played a role in really laying down the architecture of this even if they didn't didn't take the initiative to to really set it up um, you know, so the CIA and the U.S. government definitely has its its fingerprints and, and, is, and is, you know, shares some blame for what happened. And I mean, I think that that's often what happens in, in a lot of these um, these cases. I mean, the CIA has done, you know, really terrible conspiratorial and, and, and human stuff throughout its history. But there's also an element with these intelligence agencies where they, they do stuff and then uh, they encourage things that just get way out of their control and they fail to stop it for one reason or another, and it ends up blowing up in their face, and they have to basically, you know, go back and try and uh, <laughs> cover up that they had any involvement in it. Um, so in, in that case, I mean, some of the, uh, the assassins that were sent to the U.S., um, you know, they went through the border, and, and, you know, they were given approval by the CIA. The CIA said, you know, yeah, let them through, maybe because they thought, you know, they're doing something else. Um, but, you know, again, you, you have to, 
to remember, you know, they knew that this operation was ongoing. So at, at the very best, it's extreme recklessness uh, on their part. At what point was this all uncovered? I mean, it, it's, it's not that these, it, obviously there's some tactics that still play out in the global South um, regularly. Maybe they've taken different forms, whether it's, it's breaking apart move. I mean, we could go through all that, but Perta Casares, you know, being killed uh, four years ago in an extraordinary mm. way, and, and it was probably coming from a corporation, but, um, you know, similar tactics are still played out um, globally, right? But at what point did this, did, did, did Americans learn about this secret program? And it happened over, over decades. So, you know, over a long period of time, <clears throat> there were, at the time, you know, there was some reporting or, or hint that it happened. I think the, especially the, uh, the, the Latelia matter really helped to kind of open things up because that was so outrageous. But, but really people started finding out, um, you know, I'm not going to be able to give you exact dates here, but, you know, it was through the, the 90s and really even until now, things are still being declassified. Uh, it's that process of declassification that, that, that really helped to do it. That and um, the, the fact that in these Latin American countries, once the dictatorships fell and, and some time passed, there was this movement among um, victims and victims' families and, and, and human rights lawyers to, uh, one, get the truth of what happened, but also to get some sort of justice uh, for what was done to, to so many people. And uh, in the course of that, you know, there were people that were arrested. There was um, uh, Manuel Contreras, who was the, the former head of uh, Chile's uh, secret police, uh, who was you know, very much knee deep in Condor. Uh, you know, he was arrested and tried and, and you had other other key members that were the, you know, had the same fate. And through the course of those uh, trials, you know, more and more information would come out. So you sort of have several different uh, sources of, of, of information that has served to, to open things up and, and teach us about this. The, the most recent um, was, you know, uh, last year, I believe it was uh, something like a hundred and hundred thousand or so, or tens of thousands of, of um, cables to do with Argentina that was uh, declassified. Um, and, you know, there were a whole heap of, of new revelations in that, including that, that uh, actually the, the uh, allied powers, you know, in Europe, France, mm -hmm. the UK, and some others, they actually spoke to, uh, some Condor representatives that were, and, and were in talks to see if they could set up something similar in Europe, which is terrifying. This is in the eighties. Uh, this was, I believe in the seventies. Seventies. Okay. Um, how does it, yeah. I mean, I've, I'm always curious how, what the process of declassification is like, why, why do they choose to declassify certain cables or, or documents? Is it through pressure of lawmakers? I, mean, I think part of it is, it, it depends. Um, I think with the the uh, the recent ones, the Argentina cables, it was an agreement uh, between the US and Argentina. Um, and also it's one of these things that, you know, once time passes, uh, all declassification has a, a time, or at least most of it does, where past a certain point, you're meant to be able to declassify it and, and we sort of shed light on these things that, that the people have been kept in, in the dark about for, for you know decades or longer. And we finally find out what happens. You know, we saw that with the, uh, with the candy assassination uh, uh, documents that were, you know, there was a, this, uh, one of the last branches of, of documents were meant to be classified, declassified rather in 2017, I think. And everyone thought, Oh, here, you know, Trump, the Mr. Anti-Deep State, Mr. Anti-CIA, he's going to, you know, stick it to them by, by following 
this uh, <laughs> a timeline. And of course, no, he didn't. He said, we're going to keep these uh, wrapped up for another. Well, you know, another he didn't want to be proven so. wrong. He didn't want to have it exposed that uh, Ted Cruz's dad didn't kill <laughs> JFK or whatever that <laughs> conspiracy he had. Um, <laughs> Man. So, 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 how does this relate to more recent time? Um, you mentioned the war on terror, and and granted, um, the tactics they're not happening like as much on the mainland. But, but let, let's talk a little bit about how George W. Bush may have picked up some of the tactics from um, Operation Can- Condor. Yeah, and I mean, uh, you know, before I go into that, I mean, I think this is part of the reason why people still, when people talk about how Trump is this uniquely dangerous figure, you know, other people will go, well, you know, what about Bush? I mean, you know, sh- sure, he wasn't as, as impolite and sort of, you know, outwardly racist and misogynistic and everything, but I mean, the stuff he actually did was was frightening. And the war on terror uh, is is the best example of that. It was kind of taking the principles of Condor and and... You know, except in this case, it was it was really a global thing, and it, and it was not just uh, countries in the in the in Latin America, but it was you know some of the, the the biggest, most powerful nations in the entire world, the U.S., the U.K., others. Um, and you know what you had with the war on terror, it, it was very similar, you know, in its sort of skeleton to to what we think of with Condor, where you had um, there there were no borders for one. I mean, somebody could be uh, picked up in, in Germany, you know, thrown to a van. They end up being tortured in Syria, and then at the end, they end up in Guantanamo Bay. They, they've, you know, they've gone all around the world, um, and that's it was very similar with Condor. You know, where somebody would be picked up in, I don't know, you know, uh, Argentina or Uruguay, shoved into a van, taken to a secret prison in Chile, um, and maybe disappeared. Um, and so I think that that element of it, the, the lawlessness of it, the the transnational nature of it, the the use of of torture and and all manner of techniques that in in a civilized uh, democratic society are meant to be you know uh, uh, verboten, um, all of that really uh, you know it may not have um, come directly out of Condor, but it's it's definitely these kind of techniques you know, to, to stifle dissent have wound their way through history. And, and you know, in the 2000s, they ended up back uh, in the United States. You know, what's just so crazy to me is is there's also just this, the, the fear that, that is left on on citizens who live in those countries to talk about the stories. I mean, uh, it is, it is mm-hmm. wonderful that so many families did step up. But um, when, you know, from what I've read about, about this period and, and the campaigns, I mean, there were neighbors who were turning in neighbors because they were afraid of also being wound up and 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 seized off the street. So it's um, the tactics. I mean, not only does it leave fear in in the communities, but it's also just turning folks against each other. And I just I, I think it's um, I mean, that's I think a different a different aspect of this that doesn't relate to the war on terror. But, um, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, I just I just feel like it's that penetrates into a culture. I mean, Indonesia is a perfect example because mm. people don't talk about it. They're afraid to talk about the massacre because uh, it's painful. And, and it's mm. literally been, a, it, the, the, the goal was to erase it from history, to erase literally leftists mm. from history. Mm. Yeah, and I mean, I, I actually wouldn't, wouldn't say it necessarily does not relate to the war terror because uh, yeah, it, wasn't, it wasn't like you had people, you know, necessarily dobbing people in, um, all the time during the war on terror, but you certainly had uh, people, you know, there was a, a atmosphere of paranoia that was created by the Bush administration that was um, telling people, you know, be on the alert. Anyone 
could be a terrorist. You know, if you see a bag He's, sitting, you see something, say something. Yeah. It, exactly. Yeah. And that's still, you know, I mean, people probably take it less seriously now, but that is still a, a thing that you will hear in the airport. Um, you know, you had people who were, you had the, the for example, the, um, the NYPD surveillance of Muslims in, right. in New York City, uh, just ordinary Muslim communities. Uh, and, and there was, I think, certainly maybe not from the state, but but I would say probably among you know right wing media, there was a, an encouragement to kind of see people who were completely normal, law abiding Muslims as as you know maybe uh, uh, something darker. And and you know I think to some extent that's kind of continuing now with Trump, where you know you, Trump was yelling about Antifa, kind of kind of just like Condor blowing up their their the size of Antifa and its, and its importance and, and, you know, how actually dangerous or, or, you know, capable it was to do the stuff that he was alleging that they could. Um, and, and, you know, that I think is, is a similar thing where, you know, the, the messages Antifa could be anywhere. They could be in your neighborhood. You know, if you see a, a, a protest, it could be Antifa. And, and, you know, some of that stuff is coming from the liberal side as well, where the idea is that, you know, if it's a, Black Lives Matter protest or, you know, any, any sort of protest. Well, you know, that's because that, that was organized by, by the Russians or, you know, some sort of, it was, it was caused by Russian disinformation. Or, or so there is a, a really a spreading paranoia. I think that that hasn't really stopped since the war on terror. It's just kind of changed shape, you know? Um, we had a question from one of our, our, our listeners, uh, Jules T asks, and I'm fascinated by this too. What's the connection between Janitor, general Salvador Cienfuegos and the CIA, along with, separately, I think, along with the 43 massacred university students in Mexico. Um, so I just watched a, do- a, a docu, not a docu series. It was a series on Netflix. I believe it's called The Candidate. It's um, it's a it's produced in Mexico about uh, that massacre. And I know Harvey K, who's in the chat right now, also uh, knows about a lot about this because he lived in Mexico City right after the massacre. And um, mm. you know, it, a massacre that was pushed out. Uh, and organized by the CIA and influenced um, Mexican authorities to 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 basically shoot down um, an or a peaceful organized protest by teachers and fa- faculty and students, of course. Um, was there any sort of connection between the programs? Are you aware? Um, uh, Mexico is not part of of Condor, so yeah, I can't I can't speak to that. But I mean, you know, the, the CIA has has been involved in, in that part of the world for uh decades and not just the cia but the u.s government more generally you know we know from just history uh the the u.s for a long time u.s leadership saw latin america as uh you know it's it's a sphere of influence right that that was what the uh the 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 roosevelt corollary to the to the monroe doctrine uh, also also kind of emphasize that hey you know if we needed to we will come in and, and take care of this this part of the world um and and you know that all these things that we're talking about are, are part of that that legacy um and you know i mean the, yeah the cia was was very much involved they helped set up chile's secret police of course uh the u.s government gave a nod uh, to the the coup in Chile, um, you know, and and so many others uh, in that part of the world, and often this was very much to do with with uh, U.S. and and more broadly Western business interests that were right. you know threatened by all these different people's movements and in, in these parts of uh, in, in these countries, you know, um, there were a whole host of um, uh, 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 corporations that were basically <laughs> lobbying uh, Nixon 
you know, you have to do something about Chile. You have to be, do something about Chile because they, they felt that Allende's uh, government was going to be a threat to their business interests. Same with the, uh, the, the overthrow of uh, democracy in Guatemala in the, in the 50s, where, um, you know, uh, basically it was done because of the United Fruit Company. They were worried about the uh, agrarian land reforms that were going to um, basically take away the land they were using to, to, to grow fruit. Um, and again, they were, they were lobbying the government and actually members of the government were even, even, you know, they were on the board of United Fruit Company and so on and so forth. Oh, so this stuff has always been pretty solidly intertwined. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's pretty shocking now when you look back on it, but then again, you, you know, you, you look at what's going on now and is it's, it really any different? You have the board all. member of Raytheon as the defense secretary. Right. Know? Exactly. Let's be real. Um, board member of Raytheon is a defense secretary and the DNC's uh, rules committee is made up of, of folks who, you know, lobby we- for ma- weapons manufacturers. So that's, that's the world that we live in. Uh, Bronco, super fascinating article. Go check it out. It is a great read uh, for the holidays. It's in Jacobin right now. It's called The CIA's Secret Global War Against the Left. We'd love for you to come back on. I I would love to read this book if you want to write it, if you're not writing it. (laughs) <laughs> well, I mean, there's a. It's actually. I'd, I'd give a little plug. There's a, John Dingus, one of the uh, the the uh, authors who I cite. He's actually coming out with a sequel. Um, that I don't know when it's going to come out, but he is working on it. So you know, great. Uh, keep keep your eyes. Maybe we'll add that to our book club. Awesome. All right. And, oh, and, and people are giving you a shout out for, uh, of course, your book on, on Joe Biden, Joe Biden's Yesterday's Man. So they're a big fan. Wish we had time to talk about that as well. So hopefully <laughs> you'll come back uh, around inauguration. How's that? Does that sound good? Mm. We can talk about Joe Biden. That sounds great. Yeah. We got four years to discuss this, man. Yeah. So much. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Bronco. Take care. <laughs> We will be right back with our panel. Uh, we have Jordan Nesbronza joining us to talk about the today's today's news. It's the last day of panels we have for a while, so let's let's get ready. This is going to be a good one. Welcome back to the Nomi Key Show. We have Jordan Zacharin here. He runs the Progressives Everywhere newsletter. Go check it out right now. Go sign up. And Esperanza Fonseca is back. She is a member of the Transnational Feminist Organization Affirm. Uh, she's been a labor, labor and policy leader for uh, the last decade, and she's a survivor of the sex trade. I think I got that right this time, right? Yes? <laughs> Fantastic. All right, you guys are both on mute. Um, Let's talk about this this uh, senator who's been who, the incoming potential senator um, who's been appointed to fill Kamala Harris's seat. We're talking about Alex Padilla. Alex Padilla. Some are saying, "Oh, this is a good choice. This is a good choice." But turns out he didn't support Medicare for all. Let's roll that clip really quick and get everybody's reaction. Uh, Padilla went to MIT. Um, he went on, you know, to serve as the Secretary of State, this key role um, in administering the elections here. Um, I, just on a personal level, he's a good dude. Um, I think that, uh, you know, you are hearing um, some consternation from progressives. He didn't support Medicare for all here in California, and I think that that's something a lot of people had wanted to see. Of course, um, Senator Kamala Harris becoming Vice President-elect Harris, and then Vice President Harris means there'll be no black women uh, in the United States Senate, and I think that some had wanted to see a black woman appointed to the seat um, as well. Um, But as Victoria said, Los Angeles is a so-called majority minority uh, city. Padilla served here um, for an extraordinarily uh, long time as a Mexican-American.
American. Um, the state of California has never had a Latino senator. It is a uh, it is undoubtedly an historic um, and uh, important appointment uh, for the residents of the state and, and for, especially for the residents of the city. I want to start with Esperanza because you are in California, correct? Yes, I live in L.A. You live in L.A. All right. Uh, <laughs> what, what are the movements uh, feeling right now? I mean, I always like to, to, to go towards people who have a stake, who've been organizing. Um, but Medicare for all right now, which is obviously a hot button issue, <laughs> if you've been paying attention. I mean, it, it is so much of overall, the making me- Medicare for all the most popular policy item in the country has come from California. It's come from the National Nurses Union who've been organizing titles, not just them, but many. There's coalitions. Uh, how, how are, what's the vibe in California right now with this pick? Yeah, so, you know, I think like uh, any state, right, uh, people are divided. Uh, those that are a little more invested in the Democratic Party, you know, see this as, uh, you know, a sort of historic moment. Uh, but for myself, as both a labor organizer and a Mexican, uh, you know, American person, the child of an immigrant, uh, I actually find it, you know, offensive how this is being celebrated as an historic moment, uh, simply because of his identity. You know, um, if you look back at, uh, you know, the early 1990s, uh, when Kwame Ture was around, he says that uh, when the masses of people suffer, uh, the only way that progress is possible is when the masses of people advance. Mm. And putting someone who looks like us, who shares the same racial, ethnic, uh, you know, status background as us is not advancing the masses of people who currently are struggling uh, without health care. Jordan, what's your take on this right now? I mean, look, I am a white guy. Uh, so it's I, I can't it's not my place to think, oh, it doesn't matter that, uh, you know, he's Hispanic and that he's a Mexican-American. That's not you know, I can't say that that's not important because, like, you know, it's not my place to do it. But I will say that it doesn't surprise me in the sense that Gavin Newsom is not necessarily the world's most progressive person. Uh, he is not, uh, I think, of any movement, you know, I guess maybe he's supporting French Medicare for all, though. <laughs> yeah, he does. Cause it's easy to say. And French you know. laundry. Yeah. Both things. <laughs> I mean, it's a thing. It's like, did Kamala Harris actually support Medicare for all? She did it for like a minute during her campaign. So, you know, it's easy to say that you support it when there's no consequences. If you're a governor, like you're not going to install Medicare for all for all for uh, yourself. And so, you know, whether he actually supports it or not, I don't know. Um, I'm not surprised by this. I will say that, uh, you know, I don't I don't know if he'll be primaried in 2022. He has to run again then. And so it could be a quick term for him. But I think that, you know, should Dianne Feinstein uh, and this guy was a, a, a recommended by Dianne Feinstein, even though he's been around a long time. I think that should she no longer be in the Senate in the next uh, few years before her tar- term would be up in 2024. I think there will be an immense amount of pressure to nominate a Karen Bass or a Barbara Lee. And I think that the movement, you know, I'm not in California, but I think that that should start now, you know, putting that pressure on uh, both either to have them run, you know, in 2024 or to have them be like the go-to you have to choose this person when Diane Feinstein, you know, she's not getting younger when she decides to leave the Senate. And, 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 I just want to add on one little bit here. I think what's frustrating about these campaigns right now, and I say campaigns to get certain folks into these seats or to get certain issues pushed on the table um, or the outrage folks have about like the direction. If I feel as if labor has kind of 
maybe they're just operating behind closed doors, but they're they're not leading us in any direction. Esperanza, you know, you have a labor background. And I mean, if labor decided to get behind one candidate to replace Feinstein, don't you think that would uh, make folks feel a little bit better and, and would pressure the centrist Dems to do the right thing? Well, I think, you know, one thing that needs to be corrected is uh, sometimes the assumption that uh, labor leaders are not centrist Dems or are, you know, naturally on the side of progressive Democrats. Right. And, you know, that is simply not true. Right. We know during the, you know, McCarthy era, uh, you know, anyone left of center was sort of purged from unions. And so I think right now what we see in the labor movement is that we need a real resurgence of social unionism, uh, which mm. is something that, you know, we are severely lacking uh, and that, you know, I think is, uh, has been in decline since, you know, union density has been in decline. Correct. And, and, and then that leads to uh, the stimulus. So, of course, $600, I think we could all agree, stimulus checks are too small. Even Donald Trump agrees with this right now, supposedly. Uh, and House Democrats will now be leading an effort to get $2,000 checks approved. Strange bedfellows, or is there something else going on here? Jordan, what do you think? You know, I, you know, news came out yesterday that Joe Biden was a big part of accepting the $600. You know, I think that Democrats have a, I think he's just, his austerity minded. I think that's what he's always been. He's always been compromised minded. But even when he was the uh, Obama VP, he lowered the amount of money in like the stimulus so that he'd get a few Republicans on instead of pressuring them. I think Democrats, I don't think maybe they're not in the streets. They don't understand what's going on because they don't, you know, go, they didn't knock on any doors this year, but I don't think they quite understand how much people are hurting. And so they never assume that they have the popular opinion behind them. And so between being a austerity minded, I mean, this is a, you know, now a good administration that is Bruce Reed as the deputy chief of staff, uh, Mr. DLC Simpson Bowles commission between being austerity minded and then being on the defensive at all times, they are going to always give up the sort of leverage that they have. They could now we see like Trump coming out there and, you know, Kelly Loeffler has to like try and say that maybe to support two thousand dollar checks. They were about to run advertisements. They started to run advertisements in Georgia. Purdue and Loeffler about to run advertisements saying we supported the six hundred dollars. We're part of the solution. And right. Democrats let them do that. It was pathetic. And instead of using their own leverage, again, I don't know if they just don't want to give people money. That could be part of it. But I, you know, Trump, for whatever reason, he's doing this. I don't know. Maybe he just wants to screw over Mitch McConnell. But it's a sign and you know, makes it obvious that Democrats can't always just blame Mitch McConnell for things. You know, they have to own the fact that they are both out of touch and austerity minded and maybe terrified. And I think that this is a great example going into the Biden administration that they need to be aggressive and progressive and present these ideas that, uh, you know, Republicans are going to feel heat for not accepting. What do you think, Esperanza? Yeah, you know, I, I think that uh, this is endemic of a larger uh, problem with, you know, our politics in America, I, I think that there is a growing consciousness that uh, both the Democrat and Republican parties uh, are corporate parties. You know, we think that the Democratic Party is a workers party, a people's party, uh, and it's not right. They're a party of uh, multicultural, progressive, identitarian, uh, neoliberals. And so uh, we you know, we have these progressives running on the Democratic ballot, uh, promising people that they are going to enter Congress uh, in order to fight for us. And what ends up happening is that both the Republican and the Democratic Party are using poor people as cannon fodder in their political battles. And I think that is what is so, uh, you know, 
not disheartening, but almost, you know, malicious and evil about this moment is that it is poor people who are struggling without health care, who are struggling without jobs, uh, without housing security that are simply being used as cannon fodder as uh, Republican and Democratic uh, politicians fight each other for who's going to control uh, the government. And, and then the last thing I want to say about that is, um, you know, Trump uh, is, is very smart, I think, in what he's doing. And I think that the Democratic Party is only digging a grave for itself uh, because they are, uh, by not fighting for the people, they are allowing someone like Trump or even like Hawley to sort of pop in and say, right. I'm the populist candidate, I have your back and right. actually implement a far-right agenda in the process. Exactly. And then, and then what, what is built as a result is the, the ecosystem, I mean, that already exists uh, for a far-right agenda, right? Um, yeah, and I, I mean, listen, the same thing's happening on the left right now. It's it's when there's no message, when there's no strategy, when there's no leadership, that's when the folks come in and say, ooh, I, I sense an opportunity to pull some of your base away from you or divide you or bring them into my, uh, you know, libertarian, far-right, whatever this pseudo-populism uh, strategy is. Um, you know, you, you discuss poor people and and the, the vaccine uh, is first off, we don't have enough vaccines, at least in the next few months, for most Americans. We have about two thirds of the vaccines uh, number of vaccines it would it would take to disperse to all 330 plus million Americans. So I think there's like two thirds of that is what we have. Um, so capitalism is absolutely making this rollout more complicated, unfair. Uh, public sector funding made it possible for a vaccine, a vaccine to be developed faster than ever. But because we don't have a national health service in the United States, it'll mean that low-income people across the world will have to wait longer to get vaccinated. I don't understand. <laughs> Isn't the concept of a vaccine that everybody has to get it, and if one person doesn't, it puts everybody else at risk? I, this is, like, mind-blowing. You know, I was going to say that, I was going to say that I don't even know you know, I don't even know where I would get it, right? It's, we're seeing a lot of senators who called the, vac uh, the virus a hoax, people who you know, deliberately had, blood, they have blood on their hands. They, they said this wasn't true. They don't want people protected. They're all getting the va vaccine. I don't think because Marco Rubio or Lindsey Graham's getting it, people are going to be like, well, all right, then I'm going to buy it. Then, I'm, then I'll get it. Um, I think that's a, that's a BS reason, but I don't even know where I would get it. You know, you get emails occasionally from a CDMD or a doctor saying, we'll have it in the summer. Uh, and so I can't, I mean, and you know, I'm lucky to live, you know, have a home and, you know, have an internet connection, all that, where I would possibly get it as if I didn't have those things is beyond baffling to me. There needs to be like a, a, there needs to be a national industrial industrialization act so that they can produce more of this stuff That's to right. get our factories like they do in, you know, during world war two and other times to make sure that yeah. we can get this stuff out as soon as possible. We shouldn't be relying on two private companies doing it. Uh, beyond that, there needs to be like a national like squadron of people, you know, like a new deal new deal type organization that gets out there and makes sure everybody, uh, whether they are housed or not, has the opportunity to get it. They need to, I mean, I don't even know where I would go get a COVID test, to be honest with you. I could go get, go to CityMD, but that should be very available. Those are much more available. Yeah. We wouldn't have this problem that we do. And so because things are so fractured, because capitalism has created a system where there is no national health network, or even like, even if they didn't provide Medicare for all, just some sort of national infrastructure to provide those things, it is going to be a mess. And it's going to take so much longer for people to get their uh, shots and it's going to kill so many more people than it needs to. Right. I mean, it's, 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 it's important that you made that point just now, which we did at the top of the show, which is, you know, in the meantime, until there is a Medicare for all, which is going to be a drag out fight uh, for possibly several years, 
you know, we do have the ability as a, the government has the ability to institute immediate structural uh, like pop ups uh, to, 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 you know, whether it's in current hospitals or community health centers or whatever to facilitate vaccines. And yeah, I mean, it, it's absurd. You know, back in the, you know, there was the, you know, so many works progress administration. And we always go back to FDR because the last time anyone did anything, but, you know, <laughs> work progress administration where people, you know, were recruited. They went out there and they had organizations, they had places like pop ups, like you said, to make sure people, whether they got jobs or they got food or whatever, what have you, like, there's, there's not even like a food bank, so to speak, for for vaccines. You know, there should be places that in every single city, every single community, it shouldn't be that, you know, you have to get to the front of the line with a doctor's note. And you're if you're in Silicon Valley, you get you know, you, you're able to do so. You know, it's it's absolutely absurd. And the fact the lack of national infrastructure has been hurting us throughout this entire thing. And this is yet again another sign that we've allowed our infrastructure to be privatized and withered down to the bone. Yeah. And, you know, um, as someone, you know, I personally do support Medicare for all because I know that uh, it would save so many lives. But I also think that we need to come to terms with the fact that uh, even if we win Medicare for all, that is not fixing the underlying problems of our economic system. Uh, when you look at, you know, how the vaccine was produced, how it's been researched for years, uh, the problem isn't simply that people do not have health care, right? And so implementing, uh, you know, some reforms and universal programs, while helpful, uh, don't address the underlying problem of our economic system, which is that our production is complete anarchy, right? Uh, we don't, uh, our production is not structured according to human need. It's structured according to uh, profit, right? And how you can extract the most surplus value. And so until you resolve that fundamental problem of our economic system, uh, these, you know, issues are going to keep coming up again and again. Yeah, the, I think the closest thing we have to any sort of infrastructure is like slave labor at an Amazon uh, factory or a warehouse. I, they, they, they were able to create all this really quickly, and it's not a credit to them really because they just don't pay people money and they turn them, you know, like lunch meat. But the fact is, like, that's the closest thing we have to any sort of infrastructure is Amazon building a lot of warehouses uh, to send people stuff for, you know, uh, throughout the pandemic. Yeah, because they put all their money into setting up the logistics. Yep. Um, go yeah. ahead, Esperanza. Yeah, no. And, you know, I, I just wanted to offer also some brief commentary on that Jacobin article that said, yes, yes. Um, you know, socialism produced the vaccine, but, uh, you know, capitalism is sort of making right. the distribution harder. Um, I think that, you know, we could see that countries that still have uh, some infrastructure for central planning, you know, such as China, uh, were able to uh, address this vaccine far more successfully than we were. However, uh, one of the things that I think needs to be cautioned against is this sort of apolitical uh, definition of socialism, which is that, you know, socialism is when the government does stuff or the government takes control. Uh, but a political definition of socialism understands that it's not simply central planning or the government doing stuff, uh, but it's recognizing that the state, uh, you know, is an organ of class rule. And right. so right now, who rules the state and who rules those two parties uh, within the state, right? It's uh, the corporate capitalist class. Socialism is when uh, the workers, when we own the means of production uh, and we produce things according to need. And, and so I think we need to be somewhat careful with uh, apolitical definitions of socialism like that. I think it's a very smart point, absolutely. 
For sure. Yeah, I think we should create an infrastructure and then make sure people who workers and, uh, you know, people who, uh, you know, poor people and everyone else are able to get it first. I don't you know, care if a CEO can, has to stay home and work from his giant mansion. I know he's buffering himself anyways, but, you know, they need to be able to get onto their uh, private jets and they can't get on the private jet without having a vaccine. You know, you know, Ron Johnson been flying back and forth between Washington and Wisconsin on a private jet. Um, and he also, you know, stopped, he voted against six hundred dollars. So if you if you want a villain for twenty twenty two. How do you vote against $600? I mean, they don't even know what $600 means. It's, 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 it's just grotesque. This is, I don't know how people don't have torches right now and they're not just storming the gates. That's where I'm at in this process. Uh, <laughs> go ahead, Esperanza. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, just in, in the torches comment, right? I think we need to recognize that here in the US, we have a very low level of political consciousness. You know, yes. when I talk to organizers, uh, they don't even call themselves activists. You know, for example, in Brazil, they call themselves militants, right? And we know that when uh, conditions decline and consciousness rises, that mm -hmm. is how uh, the conditions that are able to produce substantive change in our society. And so as conditions continue to decline, uh, pandemics will continue to pop up. It's our job to educate people and raise their level of consciousness so that we can have, you know, torches, whatever, uh, in order to change things. <laughs> Figurative torches, I'm saying, because we're on YouTube. Okay. <laughs> Jordan Zacker and Esperanza, thank you so much for, for joining um, our last show of 2021. You guys have any plugs? Esperanza Fonseca, plugging, anything to plug right now before we uh, go? No, just, uh, you know, check out my medium because I, you know, continue to write things. Um, I'm going to be coming out with a sort of analysis of Andrew Yang's uh, policy platform and what oh, I consider to be you know, the problems do. of it. Please do. Uh, yeah, please Thank follow you. me on Twitter. Yeah, please do Turns that before out. he runs for New York mayor. Really would yes. appreciate that. Um, Great. Uh, you know, there's a, new, there's a new platform out there called Substack. I'm one of the first people to be on it. No, I'm kidding. Uh, but uh, Progressive <laughs> Newsletter uh, is on Substack. Progressiveseverywhere.substack.com. And I'll still be putting out newsletters throughout the break uh, a little bit. So just see you there. Fantastic. Thank you guys so much. And Thank you. Some shout outs from our, our, our squad on YouTube right now. Uh, love to Henry Jonas. Thank you so much for the love. And Patrick Emmerich, who says, thanks for starting The Daily Show and doing such great work to spread our pro-worker message. I hope you have a nice relaxing break. I will try. I'm going to do some live streams. I'm sure I'll channel my frustration into live streams. So if you feel free to join in that effort. Prairie Fire Kowalski from Nebraska says, Blizzard Nebraska today. Oof. Looking like a white Christmas. That's lovely, though. I'm full of holiday cheer and glee. Have some cash for 2021 indoctrination fund. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And thanks for your insightful entertainment. You made 2020 better for thousands. Greatly appreciated. And thank you to Harvey K, professor in the live chat. We love you. Go check out uh, our book club. I'll get to that in a second. So grateful to the MIDI doctors and Walrus for working the algorithms. And of course, Bob, Choken, and Orb for keeping this chat room Troll-free. We know the trolls are out. We know some bots are out. We have like a little bot analyzer, and I'm really shocked by how many bots. So I don't know where it's coming from. But, um, you know, we got to stay together. Solidarity. We have a common bond. If we want to pass these key pieces of legislation, we have to have coalitions. Uh, Vinny Holiday says, how effective is the D Defense Production Act, and why is it not discussed as an option uh, any further? You know what? That's a great idea. Maybe I'll find somebody who's an expert on that, and we'll bring them on uh, during the break as a live stream or one of these special interviews. Thanks for the idea, Vinny Holiday. 
And JL, thanks for covering this this topic today. Have a great holiday season. You too. So much love. All right, join the, the, the book club. We start in the new year. Uh, we're starting with uh, the Thomas Paine book by Professor Harvey K. If you, I believe we've hit our quota, but uh, he's sending a free book to our first, I think, 10 uh, book club patrons. So if you haven't already, go in there and sign up. And then after that, we're going to be doing, uh, well, actually, no, it's going to be The Death of the Who Killed Bertha Casadas. I don't have the books handy. I apologize. That's going to be our second book of 2021. And then I do have this book, No Shortcuts. It is one of our Bibles and organizing, organizing for power in the new Gilded Age. It is by Jane McAlevey. She is such a brilliant organizer. She's often uh, brought in to prevent any sort of union busting. She understands how power works. This is a must read. And then we have The Plunkett of Tammany Hall, a series of very plain talks on very practical politics. Brilliant book recommended by Arun Chowdhury, one of our regulars. So go sign up if you have a chance. We're going to be doing interviews um, and discussions around each of these books. So you'll have access to that as well. And you're able to share your own questions. We'll discuss them during um, each of our book book chats. I guess we're calling them. That's what it is. Have a wonderful holiday season. Happy New Year from the entire team uh, at TNS. I will see you definitely during the break. But on behalf of everybody else, we are so grateful to you. Um, this has been a rough year for everyone. And we're just incredibly grateful for, for everything that you've done and committed and for showing up and being part of this TNS family. All right. Be well, everybody. Left is best. 